This episode is brought to you by Get Your Guide, home of unforgettable travel experiences, including a behind-the-scenes tour of the McLaren Technology Centre. Go to getyourguide.com to book now. In Formula One, first impressions can be career-defining. When Liam Lawson replaced Daniel Ricciardo for five races, he proved that he has what it takes to compete at the highest level, even if his ultimate goal remains out of reach for now. A small part of me is going to feel a bit disappointed just to, to not be a full-time driver. Obviously, that's, that's what my goal is. So obviously, I'll continue to work towards trying to achieve that. But I don't think there's a way that I, I end the year feeling fully fulfilled with how it's gone, to be honest. While Lawson is frustrated not to be on the grid in 2024, he's now even more determined to realise his dream and to inspire a country. When I go to the go-kart track in New Zealand and I speak to these eight-year-old kids, I say to them, what do you want to race when you're older? And they're like, oh, I'd like to be a Formula One driver, but it's impossible, so I'm going to try and do this. And it's like, you're eight years old. You can't tell an eight-year-old what they can and can't be. And as an eight-year-old, you can believe whatever you want. I certainly did when I was that age. So I think that's also what I'm trying to do at the same time is to show that basically it is possible from New Zealand. It might be very hard, but it's definitely possible. Hello and welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Liam Lawson has demonstrated over the last couple of months why Red Bull believe he's a potential star of the future. After Daniel Ricciardo broke his left hand at Zandvoort, Lawson seized his opportunity with both hands. He beat his Alpha Tauri teammate Yuki Tsunoda in four of their five races together. He took his first F1 points in Singapore and he overcame tough conditions in Qatar. Liam truly experienced all the extremes that this sport has to offer and he emerged unscathed and with a huge amount of credit to his name. Given how much experience he's built up in his junior career, perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised at how well he performed. He's been car racing since he was 12, and he's proved his quality by claiming a couple of titles along the way. In this chat, Liam candidly reflects on his Formula One debut. He tells me how he found out he'd be replacing Ricardo, the biggest thing he's learned, and which other drivers he's leaned on for advice. We talk about his Red Bull origins, and how he's dealt with being overlooked by the team for an F1 seat on several occasions. Liam also reveals who his racing heroes are, why he wants to show young New Zealanders that Formula One is a reachable goal, and what his hopes are for 2024. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Liam, great to have you on the show. How are you? I'm good. Very good. Um, nice to be here. Now, this feels like the calm after the storm. You're back as a reserve driver for Red Bull after five races with Alpha Tauri. Just how frustrated are you not to be racing? I, obviously, I always want to be driving. And I think the thing is, before F1, it had been my whole life, you know, working towards it. And I always expected what it would be like, but you never really know what it's like in F1 until you actually drive. So you're always sort of anticipating. And now that I've actually had the chance to, to be in it, it's definitely a different feeling stepping back. Now I know what it's like. I don't have to, you know, imagine anymore. To actually experience it has obviously been amazing and, and amazing for my career, but it's, it's a, a little bit tough to, to step back. Did Formula One live up to your expectations, those dreams that you'd had? Absolutely. Honestly, yeah. Every, everything about it was, was very special. But at the same time, it was such a busy time. And also because I knew it was such a short period I was, I was having, I knew I didn't have 
a season, you know, like most drivers come in, you have a season to prove yourself. I knew that I had a, a short window that could, you know, potentially, I mean, there was a point where maybe it would only be two races, maybe three races. And then obviously in the end it was five, but I knew I had to make the most of it. And I think the whole time I was in it, I'd never really stepped back to think about what was really happening. It was all just focused on trying to maximize it. Can we go back to Zandvoort? Race one, of course, Daniel Ricciardo does the Friday practice and then has his accident in which he hurts his hand. What happened next? When did you find out that you were going to be racing that weekend? There was probably like two hours of talks about it. It was very, very likely it was possible because obviously after the incident, we knew the situation with Daniel's hands, but we weren't 100% sure on, whether, on what the exact injury would be or anything like that. I was notified very early about the potential of, of driving, but it wasn't locked in until the driver's briefing. I was in the driver's briefing when, uh, when I found out. So basically, I was in the garage with Red Bull Racing watching the session like normal, and I saw the crash, and I didn't think anything of it because it was quite a small crash. And then about five minutes later, they showed a radio from Daniel, and it was him mentioning his hand. And there was like half a second, like a flash of opportunity, possibility that went through me that I thought, just maybe, and about 20 minutes later, my phone buzzed, and it's from AlphaTauri, and it's basically a message from the team saying, you need to be at the hospitality immediately after the session. And so then I knew exactly, I knew what it was about. I knew obviously what, what was going on. So that last 20 minutes of the session, I was just pacing around the back of the garage. Honestly, the Red Bull engineers will, will know, they were all looking at me like, what is this guy doing? It was the longest 20 minutes, you know, thinking what, what was potentially about to unfold. And I knew straight away, like of all the places, Zandvoort, one practice session, the weather's not good. Like it, all these things are rushing through my head. And I tried to put it aside and just be like, let's just find out what's going to happen. And that took like two hours. Yeah, it wasn't until driver's briefing. How big an ask was that weekend in hindsight? As you say, Zanvoort, old school circuit, the weather was horrible. You only had the one practice session. It was huge, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really tricky. Um, and it was just a lot. Like when I, when I found out I was driving, there was probably an hour of just massive anxiety um, and nerves knowing what I, what I was about to, to have to do. Once I sat down with the engineers and started going through the operational stuff from the car and everything like that and the run plans and what we were going to do, there was so much work to go through that, to be honest, from Friday night until when I got in the car on Saturday, I was just focused on basically what to do. And before I knew it, I was in the car and, and driving out. Did you get any sleep or were you, were you just memorizing the steering wheel on Friday night, chatting to the engineers all night? Yeah, not, not much sleep. Um, really bad sleep as well. I woke up loads. Friday night was rough. Saturday night was a lot better. I think after qualifying, I slept pretty good. I think we did like seven pit stops in the race. Um, we, there was just so much going on. Yeah, it was a tricky one. Did you know at this point that you were definitely going to get Monza as well? No. And that's the hardest part about it is because for most of them, I didn't really know how many I was going to get. And so, especially for Zandvoort, because of the, the way the weekend was so tough, you know, I knew I, I, I didn't really have my chance to show something. And obviously, it's a little bit stressful thinking, if this is my only shot at F1, this sucks, basically, to have a go and, and to show something in F1. It wasn't the place to do it. Um, and obviously, the race was pretty rough. We, we ended okay. You, you finished ahead of Yuki. Yeah, we ended, yeah, the end of the race was okay. Um, and when it rained again, at the end, we were on intermediates. And it was probably by like 80% race distance i started to actually feel real comfortable with the car and and be able to be because up until that the whole weekend i really struggled getting uh comfortable with it i think 
the car is so fast, it takes so much commitment that if you basically have any hesitation about what you're doing, about what inputs you're putting in with steering, with throttle, with brake, anything like that, if you're not 100% confident to throw the car in, you lose so much lap time, you lose so much confidence with, with what's happening and, and that's, I think, the difference between you look at a driver like Max. He's just so comfortable all the time. He's been in this car for so much time that now he's, I mean, he's always really been like this, but so comfortable that, yeah, he knows exactly what's going to happen when he when he does something with the car. And I think that's where you start extracting those last little bits in Formula One. Well, let's fast forward to Monza just a week later. How much easier was it to get three practice sessions and and to extract the maximum from both you and the car? It was much better, just as you say, because of the, the three practice sessions. So the way we set out our run plans, it was very much based around track time, doing many laps and after P1, I was a, a few tenths off, but I knew that I had P2 to close the gap again. And then after P2, still a couple of tenths off and, and knowing that we had that time to get there. And I think that made the, the biggest difference by qualifying. I actually felt comfortable. I knew exactly where we were with the car, what we're changing. Yeah, a much, much better feeling than than, than Stanford. And the fact that Monza is a bit of a one-off in terms of downforce levels and things, did that play to your advantage in that Yuki, for example, hadn't driven the car in that spec? I mean, I think it definitely helps. It's more of a weekend where for everybody it's a bit different and because I'd never really driven, it doesn't really matter whether we're high or low downforce for me. It's I'm learning the car basically from scratch. So I think in that sense, yes, it was potentially better and I think it helped for the weekend. But um, I think it was just having all that practice time really made the biggest difference. Did you get any advice from the other Red Bull drivers, from Max, from Daniel even? Daniel was very helpful in, in Zandvoort before he went away for his surgery. He was still at the track on Friday night and I spoke to him. It was, you know, obviously very, very nice about it. And, and um, also Max, I would say, especially in Monza, Max basically said to try and enjoy it, not to overthink it. Just basically be as relaxed as you can be. To be fair, he's always been really good to me. What happens if you overthink while driving a Formula One car? Do you then try too hard and you, you end up getting a bit ragged? Is that what happened? I think you just... To be fast, you're basically perfectly on the limit everywhere, on braking, on turning, on corner speeds, on exits. You're on the absolute limit of grip. And when you put too much pressure on yourself or you overthink things or try, yeah, like you say, try too hard, you just overstep that limit and it becomes very difficult. You also, operationally with Formula One, you're changing so many things that if you're putting too much pressure on yourself, if you're very results focused and, and basically trying to think about exactly where you need to be, then you're putting more pressure on yourself and you're not potentially, you're struggling to, to make all the switch changes that you need to make. And yeah, it's just uh, something that if you're relaxed, feeling comfortable, it's a lot easier. Talk to us about the start in Monza because I remember after the race, you were frustrated about your getaway there. What happened? Basically the opposite procedure to I have in Japan for Super Formula to start a Formula One car. So all the practice starts we do, obviously I'm a lot more relaxed and it's, it's a lot easier and I can do the start procedure fine. But on the grids, it, you know, it was my first maybe proper start in, in F1. I wasn't, I mean, in Zambord, I was off the back of the grid, so it didn't really matter. But in Monza, I'm in a, a decent position and it's quite high pressure. And unless I think about the full procedure, naturally, basically, I naturally just, you know, resort to my old procedure, basically, in, in, in Japan. Annoying, frustrating, all of yeah, those things. It was, was very frustrating. We, because in the end, we finished, I mean, a few seconds away from points. Well, look, let's bring it on to Singapore. This was the race 
when you really laid your claim on a full-time seat in Formula One. Would you agree with that? Yeah. You qualified ahead of Yuki, and then you finished ninth. Can you even now, a few weeks on, remember the euphoria you felt as you crossed the line? It was very special. It's a tricky question because at the same time, all of this, you know, this, this stint that I had in Formula One and, and what I'm trying to achieve is ultimately it's a full-time seat. That's what I'm trying to work towards. So yes, it was a, it was a really good feeling knowing that potentially I'd, I'd made a, a big step in trying to achieve that. But I also knew before Singapore that I wasn't driving next year. I knew that basically I wasn't, I wasn't going to get the seats and I found out before qualifying. So before the weekend really Time, started, <laughs> timing, yeah, is timing wasn't, right? <laughs> wasn't great. So, and it was tough because, you know, the media, did, nobody knew that and the media didn't know. So after qualifying, we had a good qualifying and the media's really positive and, and basically saying all these great things about what chances I have of driving next year, but I knew I wasn't. And I think it was a similar feeling after the race. I just, I knew that I wasn't going to be in next year. So it definitely took away from what it would have felt like. How did that bad news affect your motivation? I mean, it, it definitely didn't. The thing is, motivation's never been an issue. And I think for most drivers in Formula One, if you're at the top of your game, you have all the motivation in the world. So for me, it wasn't like it added to it. I've, I've always been extremely motivated. So it was frustration, but yeah, it's a tricky one. The hardest thing was dealing with all the positivity afterwards and all the talk about what knowing was the reality, knowing that I wasn't. Yeah, I knew I knew exactly what was going to happen, but I couldn't tell anybody. Did you know at that point, and I'm talking after the race in Singapore, that you were going to get Japan and Qatar as well? I knew Japan, basically. I knew we were, we were going to do Japan, but I didn't know about Qatar. So I knew that we were going to have Japan, which was, which was really cool because I'd driven there this year. And so I think that was exciting to do. So what did the management say to you after the race in Singapore? Before qualifying, they told you that you're not racing in 2024. Did they give you any words of encouragement after that points finish? Yeah. It's all positive and it was all nice things and, and basically, you know, this it obviously helps your, your future and helps your chance of driving in, in the future. But for me, you know, it's all about it's all about getting a seat. So it doesn't really make too much of a difference to me unless unless I, I have a, a signed contract. <laughs> so you must have been supremely confident going to Japan. You've just had that points finish. You knew the track from Super Formula, you tested there, you'd raced there earlier this year. How are you feeling? Definitely not supremely confident, but I was feeling good and, and knowing the track, obviously, I, I think it was a, a big bonus for me. I think at the same time, you know, it's Yuki's kind of grew up on that track um, or he's, he grew up there. So I knew that he was going to be extremely fast, but I was excited for that track. I think more excited just because Formula One on Suzuka, it's like the perfect combination of, of car and track. And I think because I knew the track as well from Super Formula, I was, I would say, a bit more confident. But the thing is, going into any of these weekends, I definitely wasn't confident into any of them. I knew it was going to be always very, very tough. And we didn't start from square one each weekend, but it was definitely a bit of a reset going to each each track. And, and it was always a build-up. And I think that's why Qatar was pretty tricky as well, just because of the sprint layout of the weekends. All the others, you know, Japan included, I basically had all that practice time to, to build up. How difficult is it to find the limit in sector one at Suzuka in a Formula One car? Difficult, but to be honest, it wasn't, definitely wasn't an issue for us. We were there pretty much straight away in sector one. To be honest, I think a lot of it comes from the stuff I'd, I've done in Japan this year in Super Formula. The cars, very strong and high speeds. You know, the biggest thing about stepping into Formula One is getting used to a car with that much downforce. And uh, I think you don't quite get that from Formula Two. And I think that's a really big step. But with, with Super Formula, I think that made a big difference because, to be honest, 
your heart rate's very high, but at least the speed was, was there pretty much straight away. I thought the racing between you and Yuki at the start of the Japanese Grand Prix was sensational. It was hard, but fair. It was very close. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree. Do you enjoy it? I think so. The thing is, I've, I, I raced Yuki from quite, you know, quite young. I raced him when I was 17 years old. I think we started racing each other 16, 17. So um, it's different when you're racing somebody that you know. Um, what, so there's more trust. There's more trust. The thing with, with Formula One, because everybody is, it's the elite, you know, class. Some drivers are more aggressive than others, but you at least know there's always a, a higher level of trust than other categories let's say so but obviously when it's somebody you know you know more about how they race and i think that helped at the start of the race but it was very close for sure it was literally all the way up until the safety car we were still side by side did you touch no i don't think we did no nowhere to be honest it's very close but um it was on the limit but what about the old guard when i say the old guard i just mean you know the establishment the established drivers how have they been with you in these five races Everybody, to be fair, has been very, I mean, outside of the car, been very welcoming and, and nice, which has been really cool. And, and um, I think something that I maybe didn't expect so much. I mean, I haven't raced, obviously, everybody, but there's definitely a difference with guys like Fernando. His car placement is just very, very clever. He's very experienced and it comes out every time you're racing him. Even in, we had like a free practice session in Monza where it was at the end of the session, we were wheel to wheel and guys like that are just who are that experienced always seems to put their car in the in the right place did he talk to you afterwards a little bit i think i've spoken to most most of the drivers um obviously fernando guys like fernando lewis guys that i grew up watching when i when i was a kid so it's quite cool to to be able to speak with them but at the end of the day now i just want to be racing these guys now you said after singapore that it had been one of the hardest races of your career we then go to Qatar two races later. <laughs> Little did you know, Liam Lawson. Look, how much tougher was Qatar and how long did it take you to get over it? It was definitely tougher than Singapore, but it wasn't that much tougher. I, honestly, Singapore, the last like 20 laps of Singapore were really, really tough because I was my tires were quite old and I knew I had, I had Red Bulls coming at me and I knew they were catching me like two seconds a lap. And then I had Alex on fresh tires as well coming. Basically, it's it's quite a tricky situation when you know in about five laps time, you're going to be in a scrap with somebody and it's trying to work out exactly wh- how, wh- how you're going to make this work and how you're going to keep the cars behind and try and make the most out of it. So Singapore was a bit unique just because it was an absolute battle for the last 10 laps. I was constantly wheel to wheel with another car and mentally on a street circuit, it's so draining trying to be perfect all the time. Whereas Qatar was so physical i was just ultimately basically even for me i was pretty much on my own the whole race but it was just such a physical race and nobody said it was going to be like that i think we knew it was going to be like that we go to singapore early because we know it's a tough race we acclimatize we train there qatar was just a normal sort of preparation for the weekend and it was just an absolute shock to the body that like 25 laps in you know it was seriously tough did you drink from a water bottle or... I did a lot of hydrating before the weekends, but I've always, because I haven't driven that much in Formula 1, I'd never used drinks tree before. The first time I tried to use it was Zandvoort and I had an absolute nightmare. What, sprayed all over your face? Basically, when I went to use the tube, I tried to grab it with, like, with my mouth and I flicked it up and it got stuck in my nose. <laughs> so we're like <laughs> five laps in. 
to the race. I think Your I've first tried Grand Prix. First like Grand Prix. The There's so much going on, right? I'm like learning this car on slick tires. I'd never driven all weekend on slicks. It was the start of a Grand Prix, so there's obviously a lot going on. And I thought I wasn't even thirsty. I don't even know why I did it because it was five laps in. So I'm like, I'm just gonna give the drink tube a go. And obviously, it it gets stuck in my nose, and I can't get it out. So three laps go by, four laps go by, and this and I'm stressing now because I'm thinking, am I gonna have to do the whole race? with this drink tube stuck in my nose. Thankfully, a safety car came out. It's quite early on, we had a safety car and I could reach up and basically grab it. And I didn't touch it for the rest of the race. But that was my first experience with it. So I've always struggled using it in the race. I don't know why, but so for guitar, I only used it in the pit lane. Obviously, luckily we had a couple of stops. We had to do three stops, but I definitely didn't drink as much as I as I needed. And also, it, it you know, five laps and it's hot. It's basically like drinking like drinking tea. What is the biggest thing you've learned during these five races? Uh, to pick one thing, to, to narrow it down to one thing, is tricky. There's been so much in, in Formula One. You have a lot more time, so it's a lot more time goes into trying to make the most out of the car and, and yourself. Basically, by the time you get to qualifying, I'm used to in recent years in F2 and even Super Formula, a lot less track time means that in qualifying, you're still kind of learning a little bit here and there but in f1 by the time you get to qualifying everybody is in a position where they just know exactly what to do on each tire set where to find the time how to put the car on the limit and it's so close that that was took a little bit of time to get used to yeah this is a lot of a lot of things are you a better racing driver now than you were six weeks ago i mean i've learned so much being in f1 that i would say yes i'm better than i was and you've achieved so much as well it's been an incredible run for you I mean, when are you going to race a Formula One car again? When are you even going to drive a Formula One car again? Because you're no longer qualified to do any young drivers. I can't do any of the free practice sessions anymore. I don't know. Truthfully, I don't know. I don't know if I'll get to drive again. And I and I if if it is, I don't know when it will be. I mean, what does twenty four hold for you right now? I, I'm uh, because I've kind of I've raced in most championship starts. I mean, now I've even been in F one. I can't really go and do F2 again. There'd be no point. I can't do Super Formula again. I could, but there's less benefit from doing it. So I think it's it's full focus on being reserve. That means a lot of simulator, which for me, I think what helped getting into Formula 1 and adjusting to it so quickly has been, for, I've been two years now nearly as reserve. So um, I've done lots of simulator work over the last couple of years and that will just continue now into next year. And getting to learn and basically absorb being alongside the i mean the best team in formula one right now i get to sit through all the meetings and learn how they operate you've proved that you deserve a place on the formula one grid i think everyone listening to this would agree with that so how frustrating is it that you've effectively been pushed down by red bull three times first nick de Vries gets the alpha towery drive at the start of 2023 instead of you then daniel replaces nick in Hungary instead of you. Daniel then gets the seat next year alongside Yuki or Yuki alongside Daniel, depends how you look at it, when perhaps you'd argue that you've done enough to prove you need a race seat. Just how are you feeling about all that? Do you understand Red Bull's position? I think that's what's potentially helped through each scenario is yes, it's extremely frustrating, but I've been able to sit there and go, I can understand at the time of this decision, why this makes sense. And that goes back to DeFries last year. At that point, we were having a shocking F2 season and it, we turned around at the end, but it was all too late. I had a really good end to the season. I had good testing in F1, but by then the decision's made. So 
that's frustrating. But at the time that the decision was made, I think I, I could sit there and understand why just because of how my season was. And I think then this year as well, although I'm having a much better season, you have the option, you know, mid-season in a team that's struggling quite a bit to, um, at least with the car, you have an option of somebody who's never been in Formula 1 to jump in mid-season or somebody who's very experienced in Formula 1 and has won races. And so again, it's frustrating to take, but I can sit there and go, okay, I can make sense of this decision and, and understand it. I would say it's it's frustrating to not be driving next year, but um, I will continue to, to make the most of still being in Formula 1 involved at least. Yeah, I think I'm a, I'm a rebel driver. If I ever get a chance in Formula 1, it'll be through Red Bull Racing and, and um, you know, most likely at some point. I, I don't know, honestly, but I think it would be with Red Bull that they give him my shot. So. Liam, let's wind the clock back. Tell us when you first came on the Red Bull radar. I mean, I read a story that it was one particular race in the Toyota Racing Series back home in New Zealand. Is that true? Yeah, I think it was even just an overtake. <laughs> like literally one overtake, I think is helmet what, what helmet. Yeah, a good overtake. It was a big, to be fair, it was a really big overtake. Um, <laughs> Talk us through it. What happened? It was basically in New Zealand, the Toyota Racing Series is like, it's like our Formula One. And for me, when I was a kid, I always used to watch the series and, and I always wanted to race in it. And all the Kiwi guys that had done it, they were like heroes. So I watched Mitch Evans and Nick Cassidy and um, those guys race in the series. And the year before I raced, I was just on the cusp of being old enough, but I wasn't old enough. And, and so they wouldn't let me race. But there was guys, we had a Red Bull Junior, Richard Vashore was was there as a, as a Red Bull driver. And I remember like idolizing this guy. <laughs> Um, when he was doing that series. So it'd been something that I'd really wanted to do for a long time. And I finally got to race in it. And I'd done German F4 in, in 2018. That was my season in Europe. We found as much money as we could and we managed to get enough through sponsorship and investment to, to race in F4. But we had no plan for 2019. I had nothing, basically nothing signed and no money as well, really. So I couldn't step into F3. We had no idea what I was going to do, but I went and did the Toyota Racing Series and it was the first race weekend and it was like a damp race and it was drying up and uh where was it highlands so it was highlands which is south islands um first rounds and basically the last i just i did this big pass on on the outside it might have been for the leads on on the last like the last corner it's basically a very close move lots of wheel touching and the following day i think we had a basically had a contract from red bull or like an offer you know from it happened that quickly it was really quickly. It was the following, yeah, the following day. I'm pretty sure we had something basically ready. I mean, to... talk us through it. What, Helmut Marco picks up the telephone. How does a deal happen that fast? The way it all happened was a bit strange. The conversation was Helmut directly calling my manager in New Zealand. And our response was, we need to have a little bit of time, I think. So they kept it to themselves and didn't tell me. But through other sources, I ended up finding out. And I found out maybe the following week just before our next round and I was sitting with a coach for one of the other drivers but he he basically knew he knew this about this this contract I can like remember all of it so clearly I'm sitting in a cafe in uh, Queenstown in New Zealand and he basically tells me I mean Red Bull is the, especially the junior team that's like that was my absolute dream I used to look at like I said Richard Vashore uh, Jack Dew and I raced in F4 when he was a Red Bull driver and I just thought it was the coolest team to be a part of I remember basically just being really surprised i couldn't even walk properly i remember having to like really think about walking 
Like it was super, super strange. Because you were so giddy. Yeah, I was just I couldn't believe it. I just knew how how important this was. It goes a long way back, but basically the support from New Zealand, the support to get me to race overseas, came through a lot of really amazing people, a lot of support through sponsorship and investment. Because my parents haven't paid for my racing since I was in, in go karts. The whole idea when we set up the structure to, to go race in Europe was the only way we make this work is if we get picked up by a junior team. We have to get picked up by one of the Formula One teams if we're going to get anywhere because otherwise there's no way we have the money to do it. And I'd done that first year in, in F4. I'd finished second, but I hadn't. there was nothing, nothing that came out of it. I had no idea what I was going to race in 2019. And then I have this pop up. And I knew Red Bull was a team that if I delivered, I would get the chance to race in Formula One. What about racing on the other side of the world, how tough did you find it moving to Europe, being 10,000 miles away from your family? Did you get homesick? I, I did, but it wasn't actually, I was just so excited to, to be honest, to race overseas, to race in Europe. My first year I lived, before I was a rebel driver, was I did that one season of German F4. I lived in the Netherlands for a year. So that was my first year away from New Zealand. I lived in the Netherlands. Um, and I raced for Van Amersfoort in a, with, with a Dutch team. So I lived there and um, I remember I had a terrible sleep schedule. I was pretty hopeless at looking after myself, but I quite enjoyed it, to be honest, just being away from home and racing in Europe. But I think it definitely, if anything, it gets harder. What bit gets harder? The, the homesickness or? I would say a bit of everything. Homesickness has not been too much of an issue, but as you get higher up, you start dealing with more pressure. There's a lot more responsibility and then you're doing more races, you're traveling more. In that sense, that stuff gets gets a bit harder the longer the longer you go. When you're younger, you, you, there's not so much expectation, not so much pressure around you. It's you're young, and I think as you get older, you take on a lot more responsibility. I mean, a direct comparison we could make is Oscar Piastri, who's done a similar thing to you. He's left Melbourne, Australia, come to Europe, but he's had Mark Webber batting for him over in Europe. Who have you had? Who's been your big brother, if you like, whilst in Europe? So I have had a driver coach for the last five years. And when I say driver coach, it's not so much, you know, Liam, you need to break here and turn here and not that kind of driver coach. It's been a mental coach, performance coach, let's say. And his name's Enzo Mucci. And he's basically been somebody that's been with me since I first came to, to Europe. And he's somebody that works, used to work with Gravity um, and he worked with Gravity drivers and he worked with Richie Stanaway, who's obviously a New Zealand driver. And Richie was my favorite when I was younger. I had that introduction to Enzo through the same guys who supported Richie. A lot of them are supporting me. But um, when I was very young, I was like 12 years old and I just stepped out of go-karts to cars and I was going for the scholarship basically to drive a car because even after go-karts, we didn't have any money to, to race cars. And that's in Formula New First, isn't Formula it? Formula First was yeah. was the scholarship I was going for and it was like a six-hour drive to where we were going and I'm like 12 years old and my dad had these CDs and it was just this guy talking, basically. And he put these CDs on and we listened to them for hours. And it was this guy talking about how to, all these different things, how to get sponsorship, how to basically speak to people and convince people to support you, how to mentally deal with the pressure of being a racing driver, all these different things. And it turns out it was Enzo. It was actually Enzo who, who I was listening to when I was like 12 years old. And then I started working with him um, when I came to Europe. So he's been somebody that's been a massive part of, especially when I joined Red Bull, dealing with the pressure of, of being a Red Bull driver, he was a massive part of dealing with that. And my first year with Red Bull was really tough. This episode is brought to you by Get Your Guide, a leading online travel experience platform 
and home of Originals Buy Get Your Guide, an exclusive collection of unforgettable travel experiences. Get Your Guide offers all sorts of -of one-of-a-kind trips, but the one I think you'll be most interested in is a behind-the-scenes tour of the McLaren Technology Centre, the home of the McLaren Formula One team, where the cars driven by Lando Norris and Oscar Piastri are designed and built. It's an absolutely incredible place. And Get Your Guide is exclusively offering the first general public tour. You'll get an up-close look at the legendary McLarens that took Senna, Prost, Lauda, Hamilton, Ricardo, and many more to victory. Plus, there's the trophy cabinet, filled with hundreds of pieces of silverware, won by McLaren's race winners and world champions. It's an amazing thing to see. And Get Your Guide will give you a glimpse of Mission Control, one of the most secretive rooms in motorsport, where McLaren engineers sit during each Grand Prix to support the drivers and team at the racetrack. You should check out the Originals by Get Your Guide collection. It's a mix of exclusive, one-of-a-kind experiences. And if you're a sports fan, you'll find so many exciting things to do in the UK, the US and around the world. Remember that the tour of the McLaren Technology Centre is only available to the public with Originals by Get Your Guide. Reservations are on a first-come, first-served basis on selected dates throughout the year. Visit getyourguide.com to book the Originals by Get Your Guide McLaren experience now. So Liam, I'm fascinated that... You were racing cars at the age of 12. Yeah. How does that work? Yeah, in New Zealand, you can start young, <laughs> apparently. So um, it's, been, it's been a huge benefit because by the time I came to Europe and I'm racing guys in F4, it's their first, you know, they're set from go-karts to F4. It's their first season of car racing. I've done like, I'd already done, th- I'd done Formula First in New Zealand. Then I did Formula Ford in New Zealand at 14. Then I did Formula Four in Australia immediately afterwards at like 14, 15 years old. And then I... So I'd done like so many, I'd done like three seasons of racing. Yeah. I mean, you're a high mileage 21 year old. I, yeah. I, if I look at all the seasons of racing that I've done since I was basically started out, I, mean, I can list them off. It'd be, it would be a lot. It's Formula First, Formula Ford, it's Formula Four Australia, Formula Four Germany. Then it's Toyota Racing Series. Then it's Formula Three Open, Formula, FIA Formula Three in the same season. Then it's Toyota Racing Series again. Then it's Formula 3 FIA again. Then it's FIA F2 and DTM. Then it's another season of FIA F2. Then it's Super Formula this year. I mean, I didn't it's count, but that's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of racing. It is extraordinary. Yeah. And, and I guess driving so many different cars helps again when you get that call at Zandvoort to go and race another new car because you're used to jumping from beast to beast. Yeah, exactly. There's so many skills you learn in different ways in motorsport. It's not just driving a car fast. It's for for me, obviously, having all that experience in different cars. It's a lot of adapting. And in a season like in a random season like 2021, where I'm doing F2 and DTM, the two most opposite cars, you can drive. Learning to basically drive between the two of them and and maximize that. How difficult was it to jump from car to car? The 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 start of the year, I was on the verge of calling Helmut and telling him this is this is not going to work. I'm gonna fail i'd done a couple of dtm tests and then i went and did an f2 test in barcelona and my first lap i was three seconds off and it felt like a good lap and i was really concerned so it was tough but i learned 
you know, throughout the season, how to make it work. And by halfway through the season, I actually felt quite good dealing with, with both different cars. So I think, as you say, I think over the years, just all the different things I've been able to do and one way or another, they've helped. Alex Albon was your teammate in DTM in 21. What was that like? What did you learn off him? It was, it was really cool. I, I, he probably got sick of it, but I would have asked him so many questions about Formula One being with Red Bull and what it was like. And, but he was, he was always really, really nice about it. And, and a lot was learned just from driving. But I would say more that I that I got from talking to Alex was all the stuff outside of the car, the the stuff like dealing with pressure in Formula One and dealing with everything that that comes with it. He lost his license that year, like he physically lost it, didn't do anything stupid. He, he lost it, so um, he couldn't drive a rental car. So we used to drive together for like a couple of the races, and there'd be like two three hour drives from the airport, and, and so I'd sit and talk to him, and basically just talk about being in Formula One and and it was just lots of talking about being with Red Bull what it was like dealing with the pressure of of being a Formula One driver what it was like being teammates with Max how he drove uh, stuff like that I think was what I what I really learned from Alex now next weekend you have the super formula finale uh, you can win the championship irrespective of what happens next weekend in terms of the championship bigger picture now how will you look back on 2023 I think it depends on how we go in Super Formula. If, if we have a, a really good finish to the season, I'd be able to look back on the year and, and you know be like, what an amazing year. But there's always going to be, I think no matter how, how it goes and how this year finishes, I'm always going to have a, a small part of me is going to feel a bit disappointed just to, to not be a full-time driver. Obviously, that's that's what my goal is. So obviously, I'll continue to, to work towards trying to achieve that. But I don't think there's a way that I, I end the year feeling fully fulfilled with how it's gone to be honest can i at least get you to reflect on what i think must have been a highlight i want to take you back to february when you drove the rb7 at bath oh yeah now that must have been a highlight right i've never had a rush from driving like i've never had a, a, yeah, a rush in anything actually like i had driving that car around around that track it was it was completely crazy i mean bathurst it was my first time driving the track as well. So I had never been there. So I'd done it, you know, on the simulator a lot over the years. And V8 Supercars is like a big, big thing in New Zealand, a big championship that we follow. And I followed it as much as Formula One when I was a kid. So it's this iconic track. And then I get to drive this iconic car, you know, this car that I've, I watched Red Bull and, and Sebastian dominate for four years in the, in the era of Formula One. So it was very, very special. But honestly, it was just, yeah, I had, I had so much adrenaline. I remember after the run, I immediately went to the airport to fly home. So I get out of the car, I do a couple of interviews, and then I get in the taxi. And I'm just talking to my taxi driver, just like chewing his ear off, man, like talking to him <laughs> so much. I've got um, to share this experience with someone. Yeah, like yeah. I just couldn't stop it because I was on such a high. And then I just crashed like massively right, right before I took off and flew back. How hard did you push? To be honest, at different points of the track, I did push. I wasn't allowed to do the whole lap pushing. We weren't allowed to set records. So, what? yeah, no, we couldn't do that. So, I, I mean, I really wanted to go there and have a crack at, at the record. So that's why I, had to, I would push for half a lap and then I would do a couple of donuts and then I'd push again. And it was very, very cool. I remember Jensen Button saying something similar after he drove the track in the McLaren. Just elated, excited. It's so dangerous. Yeah. Best <laughs> track you've ever driven or 
obviously it's up there, but like I would love to drive a supercar, a supercar around that track and on the limit because I haven't, I haven't done a whole lap, you know, on, on the limit. It's very cool to drive. I actually took, before I drove the, the Formula One car, I did like two laps just in an E63 medical car. I had Adrian Burgess from Supercars. I had some Red Bull guys with me and I remember driving out and we were all like talking about, you know, how it was going to be. This is where you're going to do a donut here and this is how it's going to work and this is like a section of the track where there's a camera here and there was a lot of talking and then on the second lap I thought I'd, you know, get into it a bit more and the whole car was silent. The whole lap, nobody said a word. It was just completely silent and I was, you know, pushing this this road car and it's just an amazing place to, to drive with the way the track with the elevation and things like that, you experience things that you would never experience on other circuits. Some corners, because of the way the track drops away, you actually turn in way before you would normally turn in, but you just got to account for the car going over that crest and sliding across the top of the track, and then you pick up that line, and it's just like such a cool place to drive. I would love to do it in a, in a car that I can push. Let's talk about your racing heroes, if we could. I mean, the obvious person to talk about is Bruce McLaren. He said, you know, great racing driver himself, set up, a phenomenal racing team is he a hero or is it much more current tell me who you looked up to at home i mean that they're definitely heroes of mine and they're definitely guys that that i i would say like the history going that far back is as very very cool for new zealand's and something that i i massively appreciate but in terms of actual heroes and and guys that i looked up to growing up it was definitely current guys like richie was my favorite richie just the way he drove he was a guy that I basically looked up to the most. He came very close to F1 as well, as quite a lot of guys did. Um, Mitch as well. I think Nick Cassidy is also 100% good enough for Formula 1. And, and, uh, and he, Well, Nick was your teammate in the final round was. of the DTM championship, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was. So Nick's somebody that I put definitely right up at the top there. What about the sort of Scott Dixons and the guys yeah. doing things in, in, in America now? Definitely, and, and Scott as well. Scott, I read Scott's book when I was um, a lot younger, and Lewis as well lewis was like my ultimate hero from when i was really really young i read his book as well when i was i, I say I read books i don't read at all now i didn't really read back then the only books i would read was biographies was, yeah was like drivers, drivers basically yeah. so i read lewis's book as well when i was a kid how inspiring was lewis hamilton for you yeah very very inspiring i think also red bull was a team that i i loved and wanted to they were my favorite team as a kid because of the way the car looked. Firstly, just the car looked really, really cool. And when you're a kid, that attracts you. But just the way they were so dominant and the way they worked over those years. But you always root for the underdog in a way. And, and Lewis with McLaren was somebody that he was somebody that was very inspiring to me. Yeah, I would say he was my favorite when I was a kid. I mean, it goes back. You've got obviously Bruce McLaren, Denny Holm, Chris Amon, Mike Thackwell. Now there's a name for the listeners. He was a phenomenal driver who I think did what one season of formula one and then gave up and he was our last before brendan i think he was the last f1 driver from new zealand to race so um we had that massive gap basically until brendan what did brendan hartley do for you how did he help pave your way it's a big part of why this is also very important to me is since i was a kid we have this just expectation in new zealand that it's impossible to go to formula one so when I was a kid and I would tell even these are drivers that I, I mean, I won't name them, but drivers I looked up to as a kid when I would meet them, you know, quite often they say, what do you want to do when you're older? And I would say, I want to be a Formula One driver. And the response would be, oh, that's impossible. You know, you can't, you can't do that. And now when I go to like the go-kart track in New Zealand and I speak to these eight-year-old kids, I say to them, what do you, you know, what do you want to race when you're older? And they're like, oh, I'd like to be a Formula One driver, but it's impossible. So I'm going to try and do this. And it's like, you're eight years old. You can't. 
you can't tell an eight-year-old for a start what they can and can't be. And as an eight-year-old, you can believe whatever you want. I certainly did when I was I was that age. So I think Brendan helped show that it's it's possible still to, to be there. And that's also what I'm trying to do at the same time is to show that basically it is it is possible from New Zealand. It might be very hard, but it's definitely possible. Well, Liam, best of luck at Suzuka next weekend in that finale of the Super Formula Championship. Good luck there. And I am sure we're going to see you back on the Formula One grid soon. I hope so. We'll see. Thank you very Thank much you very for your much. time. Of course you can't tell young kids what they can and can't become. Liam, you're an inspiration to many in New Zealand and around the world. Now, I love this chat. Liam's description of the five races he did with AlphaTauri is fascinating, it's educational, and it's amusing. I mean, that drinks bottle straw story from Zanvor is priceless. Liam, many thanks for your time. It was great to chat. Good luck with what comes next, and I'll see you at a racetrack again soon. Now, please send in your thoughts and stories about Liam. What's your assessment of the races he did for AlphaTauri? What hopes do you have for him in the future? Let me know through all the usual means. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on X, and you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. All that segues beautifully into what you sent in after last week's episode with Andrea Stella. I referred to that conversation as a lesson in how to go motor racing, and it seems many of you agree. Let's start with this from Philip Pegler. An incredible talk with Andrea Stella, which really sets the bar at a new height. An incredible career and track record, and wonderful to listen to. He's a gentleman who continues to apply everything he's learned in his current position. McLaren is on the way back. Thanks for that, Philip. Thank you for getting in touch. Great message. Next, let's hear from Paul Underhay. Great episode, Tom. Andrea is impressive, particularly when explaining how he's focused on creating the conditions for continuous improvement rather than chasing individual upgrades, plus the need to be happy being out of your comfort zone. Will he go back to Ferrari? Well, Paul, who knows what the future holds, but I find it very hard to believe he'll go back to Ferrari, not after what he's achieving at McLaren, but never say never in this game. Finally, Let's hear from Matt Alford. Wow, I could listen to Andrea all day long. So much experience and so logical and sensible with his answers. Definitely a lesson in motor racing. <laughs> we agree, Matt. And thanks for the note. And thank you too to everyone who wrote in. We love your messages and we do read them all, even if I don't have time to read them all out now. And please remember to send in your thoughts and stories about Liam Lawson in time for next week's show. Well, that's pretty much it for this week. Thank you for listening, and don't forget that F1 Nation's review of the United States Grand Prix is out now wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. See you then. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.